turn now in your copy of uh, the scriptures to John chapter 9. Uh, if you're using Bible that we have now in the back for you, that's page 1314. Uh, it's good to be back here to chart new territory through uh, the Gospel of John. And it's amazing, it's hard to believe that we've been in the Gospel of John six months now, and we're only in chapter 9. Uh, before we begin, I want to remind you where we are in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 7, you'll recall, brought us to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it took us through the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, John 8 took us the morning after the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which was a holy convocation. It was essentially treated as a Sabbath on which they were to do no work. Uh, John 8, the Pharisees brought before Jesus uh, the woman caught in adultery. And we saw how that led to two of uh, Jesus' famous discourses, the one where he said, I am the light of the world, and the other where he said, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And now the question as we come to chapter 9 is uh, where this takes place in relation to John chapter 8. And uh, I think as you look at, uh, at our text before us, I think John gives us no doubt as to when chapter 9 takes place because he intentionally ties chapters 8 and 9 together. If you look briefly to the end of chapter 8, you'll see the final verse that says, Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And then John 9 begins, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Not only that, but Jesus is going to go on in, uh, in our text today to say that he is the light of the world, which he said uh, in the last chapter, in chapter 8. So really this chapter 9 follows immediately after the events of chapter 8, which followed uh, the day after this Feast of Tabernacles. And it may seem surprising to us uh, that right after Jesus was threatened with stoning, uh, right as he was on his way out of the temple, that Jesus would pause to heal a man. But I think this is the clear connection that uh, John is making, and it also fits with this idea that uh, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles was a Sabbath day. And that connection between chapters 8 and 9 suggests that this miracle, which is the fifth sign in the Gospel of John, is not only pointing us to uh, eternal truths, but it's also helping us uh, to see, to understand more about what Jesus had said in chapter 8 and what it means that he is the light of the world. So give your attention to these uh, words of God, which are breathed out by God himself. The authors uh, of the scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Give your attention to God's word, and before we do, uh, let's ask again uh, his blessing. Heavenly Father, when you... Uh, take away your spirit, 
spirit, the fruitful fields uh, become a barren wasteland. When you pour out your spirit, the barren wastelands become fruitful fields. We pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and cause us to be fruitful in our study. We pray, Lord God, that the evil one would not take away our joy that we should have at reading this passage. We pray, Lord God, that the Holy One would not, or the evil one would not uh, take away the seed, the seed of your word which you plant in us. We pray that your word would be planted deep within us and would bear abundant fruit as your uh, spirit enables it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll give your attention now to John chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed And I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there is a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, 
he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was born blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you are blind, You would have no sin. But now that you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and now the preaching of his word. Well, if you've read the bulletin, and I trust you have, you'll know from the title of this sermon that this is a sermon about clay. In this sermon, I want to draw your attention to one thing in particular in this passage, something which I believe the very miracle itself requires that we uh, draw our attention to, and that is that I want to draw your attention to the clay. Or perhaps, depending on your translation, uh, you might have mud, it's mud or clay. If you come away with anything from this sermon today, I want you to learn the lesson of the clay. But in order to understand this lesson, we first have to understand our passage. And this passage begins 
uh, with a question in verses 1 through 5. As Jesus is leaving the temple, uh, he sees in verse 1 a man who is blind from birth. And this leads the disciples to ask a question that sets the stage for the rest of this chapter. Just like uh, Job's misguided counselors, their assumption is that suffering is always a direct result of sin. However, they can't reconcile with this with the fact that uh, this man was blind from birth. It's, uh, it's plain that our capacity for sin grows with us as we grow. And so it seems difficult for a fetus to distinguish himself as a sinner when he's still in the womb. And so the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now certainly some uh, sin can lead to particular consequences. There are spiritual laws of cause and effect uh, that, uh, that we learn from the word of God that are written into the moral fabric of the universe. For example, laziness leads to poverty and pride comes before a fall. We know that this can even happen generationally when God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, even to the third and fourth generation. However, in this case, Jesus rejects the disciples' assumption that particular sins are necessarily the result of particular sins. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Friends, God had a much greater purpose in this man's affliction than merely punishing sin. And this is a lesson for us today. How often is it our temptation to interpret God's painful providences as a sign of God's judgment whether it's a failed test or a medical setback or car troubles or a failed relationship or some other disappointment in this life? Are we not often tempted to trace it back to some sin which doesn't follow from the laws of cause and effect written into the fabric of the universe, but rather to God's disappointment to us or perhaps to some sin long forgiven that has nothing to do with the matter at hand. In moments like these, when we're faced with some unexpected suffering, we can certainly ask with the disciples whether we have sinned, whether we have been negligent in some area of the Christian life, and perhaps God is calling our attention to it, so that we can recommit ourselves to faithfulness. But friends, if we're in Christ, we must not think that God is angry with us or that he is punishing us. Friends, all of the punishment for sin was poured out for, 
on, uh, on Christ at the cross. And all that remains is the loving chastisement of a father. We must be willing to accept Christ's answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, friends, there is another work, another law at work in the lives of God's elect. Whether a particular suffering is a, a particular effect of a particular sin or not, there's another law at work, and that is that God is always overruling suffering for our good. And that's exactly what happens in our passage with this man's blindness. So next, we see in verses 6 and 7, a physical healing. Jesus is going to use this man's suffering to put the glory of God on display by healing this man's blindness. But he's going to do it in a strange way. John tells us in verses 6 and 7 that when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now Jesus could have healed him with a word. He could have healed him with a touch. In two other miracles, he actually uses his own saliva but only here does he make clay with the saliva and he anoints the man's eyes with the clay. So what's the significance of anointing the man's eyes with clay? Well, at first we might think that it has something to do with the fact that it says that he's anointing the man. Anointing is a theologically loaded term. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil to set them apart for their office. Jesus' very name, Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in the Greek, means anointed one. And believers, we are told in 1 John, are anointed by the Holy Spirit. But here I don't think that the word anointed is uh, particularly significant. Why is that? Well, uh, the man is not actually healed until he washes in the pool of Siloam. The conclusion, I think, is that it's not the anointing with mud that heals him, but the washing in the pool of Siloam. And if that's the case, why did Jesus smear this man's eyes with mud. Well, imagine, if you will, what it must have been like to be that man born blind. Some have considered how much faith it would have required in this man who was blind. Surely some part of him must have wondered if perhaps this were all a prank at the expense of a poor beggarly blind man to be paraded through Jerusalem with mud on his eyes. But what would it have felt like 
to have that heavy clay clinging to your eyes. And as it dried, forming stiff clay eye patches over your eyes, what would that have felt like? You see, Jesus was essentially momentarily doubling this man's blindness. He was drawing attention to his blindness. He was making him feel the weight of it and the unnaturalness of it and the need to wash. The significance of the mud is not that it healed him, but it was that it highlighted his blindness and compelled him to the pool of Siloam to wash it off. And it was the pool of Siloam which healed him. The pool of Siloam, which comes from the Hebrew word Shiloh, which means scent. In its original context, I think this probably meant uh, that these were the, the, the waters from the spring of Gihon outside of Jerusalem, which Hezekiah built this elaborate underground tunnel to bring it into the walls of Jerusalem. In the case of a siege, they would have water. So these were the waters that were sent from the springs outside of Jerusalem to the people in Jerusalem. So too, this man was to wash in the healing waters of Christ, which were sent for that very purpose. So there's a physical healing in verses 6 and 7. But next, there is a controversy in verses 8 through 34. Notice again how this controversy centers on the clay. Verse 14 says, Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. To make anything on the Sabbath, uh, even to mix two things together and make a third, would have been regarded by the Jews as work. Therefore, in verse uh, 16, the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now in the course of their investigation, they're going to call both the man born blind and uh, the parents of this man to testify before them. And I want us to highlight in this controversy, highlight the differences between uh, their reactions. First we see the man born blind and And this man faithfully recounted what happened to him in verses 13 through 17. And when they asked him uh, what he thought of the man who healed him, he said very plainly, he is a prophet. By contrast, the man's parents are afraid to give a clear answer. Even though they knew better than anyone what had happened and they should have rejoiced that their son had been healed and they should have given glory to God. His parents said instead that they didn't know how their son was healed or who it was who healed him. And the reason for their hesitation, we are told, was that there was a conspiracy against those who would confess that Jesus was the Christ Verse 22 says, 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already. They had conspired together that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. J.C. Ryle says in his commentary, the children of God in every age have only too frequently met with like treatment. Excommunication, persecution, and imprisonment have generally been favorite weapons with ecclesiastical tyrants. Unable, like the Pharisees, to answer arguments, they have resorted to violence and injustice. Friends, this is the same power and pressure at work in our day as well. And just like in our day, these Pharisees can't let this man's beliefs go unpunished. And so one more time, they bring him before them to try to intimidate this man born blind with theological sounding language. We've seen that same thing in our culture where a woke ideology is presented under the guise of a superficial Christianity. The Pharisees say in verse 24, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And when he refuses to cave to their pressure, it says that they reviled him in verse 28. And they said in verse 34, You were born, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And then it says in verse 34, they cast him out. They excommunicated him. So there's a question. There is a physical healing. There was a controversy. And finally, there was a spiritual healing in verses 35 through the end of the chapter. After the man was cast out, Jesus found him again. And this time... Jesus opens his spiritual eyes. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when they had found him, he he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. After Jesus uh, revealed himself to the man, he went on to say this in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. What does Jesus mean by this? Obviously he's not referring to physical blindness. It is true that he gave uh, physical sight to the blind, but it's not true that he gave physical blindness to the seeing. Rather, Jesus is talking about spiritual blindness. But Jesus, Jesus also can't mean that he will take away uh, the sight of those who spiritually see in the sense of truly having faith and make them spiritually blind by taking away their faith. Rather, if we could paraphrase what Jesus is saying, he's saying something like this, For judgment I have come into this world that those who know that they do not see may see, and that those who 
who think that they see may be made blind. It's similar to what we see in Mark 2 verse 17 when Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not that there's anyone truly righteous and not sick, but it's only those who know that they are sick who will seek a doctor. It's only those who know that they are sinners who will seek a savior. Everyone who comes to Christ will be healed, but those who are too proud will never come to him. Jesus says the ones who are ultimately blind, the ones who are truly Blind are the ones who think that they see. True spiritual blindness is to be blind and to not know that you are blind. The Pharisees hear this and they ask him, are we blind also? Essentially they're saying, we see. But Jesus tells them in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say, we see, Therefore, your sin remains. Jesus says they see enough to make them guilty, but not enough to come to Christ and be saved. Well, friends, if true spiritual blindness is not knowing you are blind, then do you remember what was the purpose of the clay? The purpose of the clay was very simply to show you that you are blind, to bring your blindness to your attention, to humble you, to make you trust nothing in yourself. Do you see how this passage is all about the clay? You see, the grace of God began in this man's life by smearing mud over a blind man's eyes, by showing a man his blindness so that this man would come to see. So I want to make uh, two applications from this passage. First, regeneration always begins with the realization of our blindness. The first work of the Holy Spirit is always to convince you that you're wrong about what you believed about God. The first work of the Holy Spirit is to break your pride and to humble you To make you know that the God whom you thought existed is merely a God of your imagination. And it's the God of the scriptures who you must fear. You thought the God of the Bible was mean. You thought the God of the Bible was irrelevant. You thought he was perhaps a fairy tale. You thought he was untrustworthy, incapable of preserving his word, incapable of communicating uh, his truth. You You thought that he was morally antiquated and backwards. You thought that he was not as fulfilling as the life that you could pursue without him. You were blind. And the first work of regeneration is that God convicts you of your blindness. Just like Paul on the Damascus road, he needed to know that he was blind and before he could see. 
Paul needed to know that his uh, vast learning was nothing compared to the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. He needed to come to Christ and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 9.18 that after Paul was struck with blindness, that he came to Ananias and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. You see, Paul's scales led him to the grace of God poured out through Ananias just as these clay scales on the man born blind drove him to the pool of Siloam. And when believers are convicted of their blindness about the things of God, they, they often find someone in their life who was sent to bring them the words of life. And they find Christ and they receive the grace of God and they will find their scales fall off from their eyes and see. Ultimately, God used this suffering for his good. So the first lesson is that regeneration always begins with the realization of our blindness. And what about you? Have you realized your own blindness apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures? But if that's the case, then a second lesson is that witnessing must confront people's blindness. If you see, then give glory to God by being a witness of what you see. Compare the witness of uh, the man born blind with the witness of his parents. You see, his parents merely obscure their witness and keep the Jews in darkness. They refrain from this grace of putting clay on the Pharisees' eyes by showing them that they were wrong about Christ. And humanly speaking, we can see why they had every reason to refrain. We know that men do not like to be shown their blindness. Men do not like the indignity of being led to the Savior. His parents were right to think that it would lead to suffering and excommunication. But notice that that doesn't stop the man who had been healed. The man who was healed testifies to what he saw, and as a result, uh, he testified to the Pharisees of their own blindness. So friends, do you want to help people to see? You have to show them that they are blind by showing them Christ. Don't confirm them in their blindness by telling them merely what they want to hear or what merely confirms their own false worldviews or by simply staying silent. Tell them about Christ. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ as a good soldier of Christ. And friends, the most that they can do is to excommunicate you from a place where Christ is not to a place where Christ is. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews says, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. 
Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. When we suffer for Christ, when we're cast out, we are always brought near to Christ who has himself been cast out. Just as this man lost the world and gained Christ, let us count all things as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ and proclaiming Christ. Well, as we conclude, I want to apply all of this to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we have the clay and the water of Siloam in different symbols. The Lord's Supper is at the same time the clay that proclaims the death of Christ until he comes. It's that perhaps uncomfortable reminder that we are blind in ourselves, that we are terminally sick and in need of a physician. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and in need of a savior. And supper after supper shows us the wrath that our sins deserved that was poured out on the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. But at the same time, the pool of Siloam, sorry, the the Lord's Supper is also the pool of Siloam, which proclaims the mercy of God poured out in Jesus Christ. For those whose eyes have been opened and who are able to come to Christ, it's a reminder of that fountain from which all of our blessings flow. It's a reminder that Jesus bore the wrath of God and out of that broken body poured out this life-giving river of blood that flowed from Jesus' side. Friends, in the Lord's Supper, we who have been despised by the world enjoy fellowship with Christ. So I simply ask you as we come to the table this morning, do you see? Do you see? Have your eyes been opened? Do you count this meal and all that it represents to be more than all that this world has to offer? Friends, that's what it means to discern the Lord's body. Friends, clay itself is not the gospel Without the pool of Siloam, the clay would simply be a mean trick played on a blind man. But if there is a pool of Siloam, if there is a healing for sins, then the clay that shows us our blindness is the most gracious thing that anyone can do, that anyone can give to us to anoint our eyes with clay to show us our blindness and to lead us to a savior. And friends, every ailment, every suffering along the way, even this man's life of blindness is a small price to pay for the satisfaction of knowing Jesus Christ, our savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have opened our eyes. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that nothing that you do is done in jest, 
We thank you that we can trust you, that all that you do is for our good, even in the moment when it seems painful. Lord, suffering in the life of the believer always leads to our growth and to our conformity to our, to Christ and to uh, our greater and greater fellowship with you, the man of suffering and the man of sorrows. So we pray, Lord, that you would not stop your work of opening our eyes more and more of, even though we've already believed and come to faith, pray that you would continue to point out those ways where we might be blind even uh, when it is uncomfortable to be made aware of those things. We pray that you would continue to do your convicting work. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to open our eyes as we come to Christ from whom is uh, the fountain of life. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.